You may wonder what would bring Panic at the Disco, Fits in the Tantrums, Tom Jones, One Direction, and Ringo Starr all together in one episode. Our guest today, producer-songwriter Sam Hollander. I'm very excited to launch the first episode of Song Chronicles. With 20 top 40 pop hits and worldwide smashes, Sam was gracious enough to sit with me in Hollywood last fall. And I'm so excited to share with you this interview with songwriter-producer Sam Hollander. I am really grateful that you took the time on this hot Saturday afternoon to talk to me. And you were just telling me about a documentary that you're producing. I'm producing a documentary because I'm a professional hobbyist at this point. Mm-hmm. So I've decided it's a documentary on the uh, on uh, the, the phenomenon of autograph signings. And uh, it's called Hollywood Sign. And we're just wrapped it. And what's interesting about it is it takes me back to my days as the consummate fan as a little kid who had the same size ears that I have right now, which were deemed Spock at a very young age. And I, uh, I was very nerdy, and my father and I would drive from New York City to um, Washington, D.C. so I could collect political autographs. So I have an incredible collection of late 70s and early 80s political autographs. So if you need to know somebody who has a Shirley Chisholm autographed 8x10 I'm that guy, a Mo Udall, a Barry Goldwater, or a Tip O'Neill. I have Ted Kennedy. So I, uh, I began as a fan, which I guess is probably how I ended up in my real day job choosing that vocation. I think I have a George McGovern for president button to give you. Can I tell you something? Is it autographed? <laughs> no. Uh, then you don't want it. It doesn't really <laughs> doesn't do anything for me. I have a McGovern 8x10. Wow. At least I can't lie about these things. So um, I do. I do. So I, yeah, I was, uh, I grew up very nerdy and I loved music and I loved collecting stuff and I collected autographs. I collected people. I just was the consummate sort of geeky sort of kid. And New York kid. Yeah. New York City and then lovely Westchester County. Mm-hmm. Through that, I think I probably ended up on this path with my love of sort of strange celebrity and um, a song. So was it? I love that you do so much as a top liner. That was a that was a thing that was never a word when I was growing up. It's a bad word. It's a terrible word. Do I we need it. to stop using that word? I wish we would. I mean, I, I feel like I'm a songwriter, and uh, in terms of I can probably strum a few chords on the guitar. I write a melody and I, and I can throw it on a lyric on top of it. And I understand that we need to delineate roles in today's assembly line culture. And that's mm-hmm. why things work. And we are making blockbuster films in principle. That's sort of what I think songs are becoming, certainly pop songs. And I think that's great. But I would say it's just strange. Um, you know, the labeling, I think it just it, it just marginalizes the whole process. I, I, I'll write with somebody and I'll, I'll hop in a room with some somebody and the they've been pitched to me as track guy, which is also really a weird demeaning term because I prefer a track girl, you know, like uh, there are so many women making incredible beats and stuff like that. But, you know, the term I think is still sort of track guy, which is interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody somebody's got to uh, get woke about this. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it'll come. Mm-hmm. But 
I would tell you that when I'm in a room with one of these people, sometimes I'm blown away by their melodic sensibility. And it's somebody who can sing their face off and actually has like a, some sort of lyrical presence. And you think, oh, how the hell did this just happen? Wait, this is track guy? This, no, it's a songwriter. Yeah. It's really what it is. And I, I, we got to that point and I, I've, I've watched that really materialize over the last seven or eight years and it became a thing. So I don't really, I don't know. I'm not a definition person. So I don't know. I hate yeah. all of it. I hate everything. <laughs> Sorry. We were talking about this while we were setting up about how being a songwriter, how important it is to get a sense of community and socializing. Yeah, I got to tell you, I the one thing I, I have so much love for the music industry, certainly the the creative end of it, um, because it's sort of like it's 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 like a high school of misfits. It's like your high school smoking section have all banded together to create art. And what's wonderful about that is it's a nice group of people. And there are people like I compete against on paper, on records. Like I'm writing with a band this week. They're writing with a band the next week. But you know what? We share information and we're just friends. And outside of it, we'll have a cocktail and have a good time. And I just... It's a it's very it's really a loving, supportive community across the board, even, you know, on the label side I have many friends at labels and blah, blah. And they're they're all wonderful. I have to tell you, I if 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 as a kid, I never really you know, you you would look at you would look at the icons of the day. Right. You looked at the the Walter Yetnikoffs or, the, you know, the the Matolas or the Clives or Chris Blackwell, all these guys. And there were these huge iconic figures that I couldn't imagine ever fraternizing with because it just felt so many miles away from my world, you know? And now the people who are the gatekeepers now, they're awesome and they're sweet and they, they, the writers are allowed, you know, we all hang and it's like a, it's a community. And I, I would say, I love that. And, you know, as a writer, I'm pretty internal and I like to just work in my own space. And, uh, you know, I like doing things. I have a very set process in the way I like doing things and stuff, but outside of it, when the day ends, I love that there are people I can really, all, all over, you know, town, there's just, you know, great cats everywhere I can hang with and really just break bread and, you know, talk about it, how just absolutely crazy this business is, you know? And, and how long have you been in L.A.? I've been in L.A. officially eight years. The weird thing is, you know, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. And when I made this move through the years, I'd lost 50, 60 friends to, you know, to the migration west and also to Nashville. So as people kept leaving... When I moved to L.A., it was like a wonderful reconnection because, you know, people you sort of like become email friends who were people you spent, you know, copious amounts of times with like really like getting into it. And uh, that's been one of the great reveals. Like when I got out here, I was like, oh, my God, I like I've made so many new friends, but also I had so many old friends. So I'm pretty friendly. You're a friendly guy. I'm pretty friendly. Now. Yeah. It, and, and I love Panic at the Disco, and I love that you put that on paper and that it became a hit record. It's kind of subversive. Y- yeah. I mean, it's it's got so much truth in it, yeah. and it's a sad truth, and yet it resonated with so many people, and the video is so great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> did, you, did you think that it was risky writing it at the time? Well, the great thing about collaborating with uh, Panic and Brendan, you know, is... Uh, it's kind of all gloves are off. So I, I don't, you know, when we throw down together, I don't ever feel filtered. So it goes to my, uh, it goes to, it really hits all my sensibilities. Cause I just, I like to just put it on paper, whatever I'm feeling and whatever, you know, if I'm collaborating with Brendan, whatever we're both feeling and sort of getting a, getting a window into his soul and his life. Cause you know, I get to view it as just like a friend and a spectator and, 
I get to see this kid who at 32 has had, you know, 20 platinum singles or some crazy stat. And, you know, he's like a man child. I mean, he's just still a kid, but he's like lived in an entire adult life. And just, I try to, I sort of marvel at what this kid has to deal with every day. And beneath the core of it, I try to sort of, when I write with him and write, write for him, I try to sort of channel sort of the darker elements of it and have a good time with it and play with it. And also look on high hopes is about optimism. This one's, you know, the other side of optimism. So yeah, yeah. I think like they're really fun companion pieces, at least for me. I don't know if anyone else got that, but I thought that was kind of cute. It's very cool. It's two sides of it. I was just in Nashville and I was at Belmont University talking to some of the songwriting students yeah. there. And I feel that a lot of them would wonder how you get from where they are to where you are. The chances of writing with people who are making records that people are going to want to hear. Well, I mean, you got to know your mom. You know, I think it starts with yes, your mother. Yes, you, so, you told me about how my mom yeah. gave you a break at I feel a like, crucial time. Yeah, I mean, the thing about your mother is um, when I started out, I always equate this to sports, and some people will appreciate this reference, and some might not get it, but if they take the initiative, it's certainly Googleable. But I always felt like I was like, a sort of a mid-round draft pick. I can't say I was a first-round draft pick, but a mid-round draft pick who never lived up to his potential. And there was just a moment in time when nobody really got what I was doing. I had one friend who understood what I was doing, and I had a manager who understood what I was doing, and nobody else. And I... um the funny thing about your mom is, you know, I was working with a rapper. I was developing, I, I, you know, I began to develop acts and I developed acts because I felt that there was no way in the world in Kurt Cobain era, sort of 90s rock, there was no way to collaborate with a band as an outsider. I met bands all over the city. I would pitch my words. Hey, I'm lyrical and I have ideas and blah, blah, blah. It was the least cool thing a band could do at the time would be to get in a room with somebody like me, you know, especially somebody like me who had done nothing. And what's funny, so out of, uh, out of necessity, I decided, well, I'll just develop my own acts. And then at least if I do that, they might have to cut my songs. <laughs> <laughs> at least I could try, hustle my way in. So that's what we did. And when the funny thing is, every single one flopped. And I got deals for all these acts. And I think people really believed in the potential of what I was selling. But then I would whiff. And when they would whiff, my stock was just going down in value. And I had this uh, female MC that I was developing. And I wrote all of her rhymes. And... Your mom got wind of the project through Brian Maloof at RCA Records at the time, who had signed it. And Brian uh, connected us and we wanted your mom to cameo in a song. And she came in and I still remember your mom sort of started talking to the girl and said, hey, I love your rhymes. They're great. They're really interesting. Blah, blah, blah. And the girl sort of pointed over to me and your mom's face, I still can see it, is sort of flabbergasted, horrified. Like all these things. It's like, what? It's like, yeah, man. You know, it's the Jew from Westchester. Like just spin verses, you know, and 
she thought it was pretty funny. And we, uh, we connected right then and there and we began writing together and, um, we wrote a bunch of tunes and one of them ended up love, love makes the world. And it was the title track of the record. And I got to produce her with her and which was amazing. But then my friend Dave Shelmer and, uh, you know, who I worked with at the time. And it was just this incredible stretch for me, but it was funny because I was working with probably the greatest living songwriter. And the flip side was I still couldn't get in a room with anybody my age. And I didn't understand. I thought, well, if you are, if you have gained the respect by the legends, it should pass down and it didn't. And so as Carol, you know, Carol introduced me to Paul Williams and I started writing with Carol and Paul and Paul and I became super tight and Paul introduced me to Jimmy Webb. And I just met all these, these legends in this process, but I couldn't get in the room with any 20 year old band in, in the country. And what happened was I decided to go back to that drawing. I'd taken a year or two off because every project had failed. So I went back to the drawing board at the same time. My friend Jonathan Daniel, who was the one guy who believed in me outside of my manager, Brett, you know, he would we would have these lunches where he would like discuss and sort of break down the records that I was making that weren't even getting released. And he would articulate what he liked about him. And he was pulling, he understood the influences. He's like, oh, you did this band Jay Bender for Columbia Records that they didn't put it put put out. He's like, Oh, I kind of hear like a bones how thing on this. And my you know, my jaw hits the ground. I'm thinking, how the hell did you figure that out? That's exactly what I was going for. And if you know Jay, you know Jonathan Daniel or JD, as we call him, you know, I mean, now he's the most powerful manager in the business. But back then, he was just like my scrappy friend I made in the East Village, and we had all these cats around the village, and um, we just, you know, everybody sort of had each other's backs because we were all sort of struggling, and all of us had sort of had friends who were had succeeded younger. And we were late to the game. And it was funny because we were, uh, those of us who had success later, I think really took care of each other because we all sort of understood how hard we fought to stay in this. So I guess to wrap that up, what I'd say to the, the lovely folks at Belmont and their incredible program is study, learn, but get on the streets and hustle because everything I ever did was literally just on the streets fighting like for creative survival and just hanging out at studios, hanging out at clubs, hanging out at studios, hanging out at clubs, and just constantly just meeting people and networking and then writing and, you know, and constantly, constantly sort of um, getting better because, you know, everything is market research and everybody, everybody talks and everybody's aware of skill sets. And early on, you know, I realized, man, you know, if I just kill it, then the next person's going to tell the next person next thing, you know, it's, it's, game, it's this weird game of telephone. So that's, um, that's what I would say. It's hard because I speak at colleges and, you know, a, a lot. And these kids now have these incredible programs to go to like Belmont, like NYU, like Syracuse, you know, there's great, great programs all over the place, but nothing will ever supersede getting on the street and just hitting the pavement 200 miles an hour and coming up with a bunch of like-minded freaks like yourself and build up a nation, you know, and that's what that's that's always been the way I approached it. It sounds like from what you're saying too that you had a vision that you wanted. You didn't want just acceptance in exchange for giving up the way you were doing things. Like you wanted people to get what it was that you were 100%. about. You yeah. know, well, also I, I early on I realized that 
there are a couple things that put me in a strange light because for songwriters competing for the slots that I wanted, I was one of the very few who really wasn't an artist first. I mean, I had made a record, but my record sold four copies and was like a laughing stock. I, I was a rapper. You know, no one needed to hear that. No one ever needed to see me on a stage. So the one thing I realized very early on was I wanted to be the guy behind the curtain who was the fan of the movie who could help, you know, each sequel for an artist and really approach it without my own ego driving it, but more, you know, just really coming from a fanboy place. And when I... um and when I began, I realized that most music for pop was pitch music. And like if, if artists weren't specifically like bands and a lot of artists weren't collaborating with writers back then. So it was a lot of it was a pitch dominated business. I didn't want to write pitch songs because that's not what I do. And that wasn't really why I got into this. I liked once again, going back to this little kid with the autographs. I like being in the room with famous people as the fan and trying to direct their next thing. And because of that. I had to sort of fight for that agenda, you know? And the way to do that was, well, I'll make my own famous people. And what happened was we did it and we did it, we did it. And eventually it worked and we started having hits. And when I started <laughs> having hits and we were creating bands and they were having lots of hits and lots of success, that's when everybody else began to call. But you know, it all starts with your mom, man. So she's in the, she's in the, she's in the pole position in my heart. You know, there's just nobody I put in that league. She's the, She's one of the greatest people I've ever met. And honestly, like if I've written with a thousand different writers, she's still number one. She's the coolest. It put me at like 190, but I'm going to put her number one. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. <laughs> so that's when you wrote with Fits and the Tantrums, you were there early. Fits and Tantrums came out with an EP and they came out with a record. And it was time for their second. And the first record I adored. I loved what they were doing. And it was like this weird soulful pop hybrid. And I loved it. And I met him, I shook his hand at a club. I'm out at a party, I shook his hand. Someone introduces us. And then I had my manager hit his people and blah, blah, blah. And I tried to get in for the record that followed. And I totally, you know, I got stonewalled and I missed the cut. I, you know, he wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he didn't want to meet. And, or it never even got to him in all fairness, you know. And I was devastated because I really felt there are certain acts where I get a, a strange sort of visceral response where I know I can crack a puzzle. Like I just can feel it in the air. Like there's just something I say, okay, I could do this because I know what to do with this that somebody else wouldn't do. And with Fitz, I felt that and I couldn't permeate it. And then they had that record and they had uh, uh, Out of My League and then a couple of big songs of that record. And they were about to make a third record. And uh, with my friend Kevin Griffin, we were putting out charity records under the guise of Band of Merrymakers. We were making Christmas charity music. And Kevin brought Fitz in one day. And Fitz came to sing on the song. And he was at my house. And we just started connecting the dots on our lives. And more than any artist I've ever worked with, we probably had more in common. We're born a couple months apart. You know, our frame of reference was identical. Our parents both sort of, we both come from weird academic families. There's all this stuff that was so similar. It was like he was L.A. me. He's also better looking. He's like better looking L.A. me. But we had a, it was such a strange symbiotic sort of relationship when we met that he said to me afterwards, he said, look, I, you know, if you're down to write, like I'm down to write. So I cleared out a month and 
I wouldn't take anything. It's all speculative. No one's paying me to write. You know, I, I, I write as a speculative writer. You would imagine someone say, I didn't mean a month, <laughs> dude. Yeah, I was like, I wouldn't let him out of my sight. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you know, I before he came in, I had an idea and it was hand clap. And I, I heard something in my head, which was, you know, I can make your hands clap. And it was like a, and it was a verse sort of scat thing. He walked in the room. We hung out for about three minutes. And I, uh, I said to my uh, engineer programmer, Grant Michaels, who was on the session, who's amazing. I said to Grant, I said, give me like a bagpipe sound. So the first thing I want to hear is something that feels like a bagpipe with this guy. And Grant got this incredible sound up. Fitz sat down, started banging out this thing. And I just started screaming this verse out. And it just came to me from the heavens. I just started screaming at this verse. And I said, I can make your hands clap. And Fitz went. And it was weird because he did like a five clap. I was like, what the fuck is up with this guy? What is a five clap? One, two, three, four, five. And you know, I'm used to that. You know, the two clap. I mean, it just feels like I'm a disco kid. So I right, felt like, you know. Right. And he said, no, it's, a, it's that. That's what it is. And we, we debated this for about six seconds and the extra clap. And we wrote that song in 20 minutes. And the funny thing is it was so loose and effortless, but fits fought for that song from the second we left to, you know, I mean, I, he told me today it's three and a half years later and now it's a hidden Japan as we speak. It's one of the biggest songs, I guess, in the history of Korea did, Oh, you know, a billion or 2 billion streams and billion in Korea alone. It did, you know, almost a billion in China. I mean, this is just like such a worldwide sort of moment, but he said, I, you know, he was at my house a couple of days ago. He said, you know what, just so you know, it's huge in Tokyo right now. Like out of nowhere, like it's it's a it's an event. He's, he has a new album out, but that's still like the song just resonates. He was the one who fought for it and believed in it more than anything. But what was great was in the process, because he dug me that first day, we kept going and we wrote a lot of songs and there are a lot of them on that record and they're songs that I love. And he is a uh, he's a wonderful guy. Great That's guy. great. Great guy. I love that. Guy that I really dig. I, w- I also saw that you worked with Tom Jones. I did. I, I want to know about that. Then. That was strange, you know. Steve Greenberg at S-Curve was making a Tom Jones record. Yeah. And, you know, Steve is prone to an opus, you know. He, he was, uh, they had all these ideas. They were doing a 15-minute version of Bruce Springsteen's The Hitter. And with Tom Jones singing it, and there was, you know, Steve's labor of love, and they're just spending all this time and the stuff. And then Steve hit me, he said, you know, he said, I can't get you, uh, you can't write on it, but if you want, you can produce this cover of uh, I'm Alive, which is by Mark Farner, I think, and uh, from the early 70s. And so I went and I tracked that thing in one night. I didn't think he'd cut it. And then next thing you know, we're tracking Tom Jones, which is just like surreal, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very lucky because for every bit of like pop or rock success that I've had, I've also, I, I make sure to pepper it with a record that speaks to me on a different level, like something what, you know, somebody I grew up sort of idolizing and that's how I nerd out in this business. And that's what gets me to wake up in the morning. So you know, I mean, obviously starting with your mom, but then from from Carol and Paul Williams, you know, we've been working together for years writing stuff. Uh, you know, I've done uh, uh, Ringo. I've done, you know, uh, Beach Boys, Mike Love. I've done, uh, 
Tom Jones, Joe Cocker, you know, the OJs. So like, you know, that's what balances these other records that, you know, uh, are broader at the time because it just feels like then I'm just creating this whole spectrum of music that I could listen to and sort of it, it just it's constantly I'm trying to just encompass and sort of fulfill the whole vision of what it started, which was just consummate fan who gets to write songs. You know, so. so do you look at charts to see what trends are changing or do you just still come at it as a fan listening to what you like? It's a great question. I mean, I um, I like to keep up with I listen to hits one in the car. I like hits one a lot because it's sort of it. It's indicative of sort of the higher end of what's working. But, you know, even if there's a lot of stuff that I don't connect with on any level, I'm fascinated by why it works and I try to deconstruct it just in terms of like melodic tendencies, rhythmic stuff, just sort of understanding it. And then, you know, you can always learn something. I mean, I don't have to like what's going on to learn from it. And that's the difference. It's like, you know, I'm not cynical about it. I don't really have musical elitism of any sort. And, you know, I just sort of, to me, best song wins. And sometimes there are things that just blow my mind that are out that are new and then there's a lot of stuff that I think is garbage that works but I understand why it works and I think that someone did a great job with it even if it's not for me mm-hmm. I don't know why I called it garbage but you know what I mean yeah there's, uh, probably, there's probably a better way to put it well yeah you think maybe they could have tried harder I well they tried hard they just <laughs> it just doesn't resonate with my taste because of streaming now, everything is available to everybody at all times. So, you know, a, a, a lot of kids are familiar with all the Motown records, mm-hmm. the old records. And what works about those records is the fact that people are in the room and the imperfections create a imperfections, bigger sound. 100%. And, you know, I'm still a fan of singing all the choruses all the way through the song instead of cutting and pasting the first chorus into the outro. I mean, how much time does it take? Another three minutes? I'll tell you something funny. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, uh, I had a, I, I'll name song A. I had a big song a decade ago. It was called Shake It uh, with a group called Metro Station. And it's a massive, massive record at the time. And another band who I was working with was listening to the final mix of it and they came in the room and they started losing their minds They're like on the outro it just feels like the vocals are all over the place because of the chant and the whole crowd we have a whole group called the crush it's they're like our background singers and they're singing shake 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 it but they're completely out of time which is awesome and this band, there, there are three or four of them came in the room and they're losing their minds. They're like, how can you put out a song which just, it's not tight. It's not lined up. It's not on the grid. And I thought, you know, so then I, I always put on uh, Dancing uh, in the Moonlight by King Harvest because you're the greatest song ever, but it's also like, man, that percussion is so wobbly. There's a push and pull of that record that is, you just feel like those guys, you know, they'd all dosed and the LSD was hitting them right at the right time as the percussion's happening. And one percussionist might be playing a different song and you can't tell and it's magic. But, you know, kids today don't appreciate that to the same extent, you know, and it just, it's a different culture. So I, I like anytime I can get something really live and greasy 
it's great. I also love modern stuff too, but I think like if you can find ways to sort of infuse both, it's neat. You know, I don't want to make like a pastiche every day. I want it to like, I want to push the, push it forward. It's just, I don't know where it all ends and that's where it gets dangerous. I don't know if there will be a revolt against all of this and everything will go back to some purely organic primal form or if everything will be so robotic, you know, that we don't, you know, it'll be AI artists or whatever. It just, yeah. I, I have no idea where this is headed, but I would say we're, we're speeding into something. Uh, yeah. I just hope we're not racing to oblivion, you know? So. We all hope so. So but tell me your favorite writing story. <sighs> My favorite writing story. I, um, it's an old one, but I, I was, I, uh, I helped put together a band called We the Kings. They were one of our bands. They were a band called uh, DeSoto from Florida. And um, they came to us, and I hated the name DeSoto. And they came to us via MySpace. And what I realized immediately, I had to show these guys that there were 250 other DeSotos throughout the country. There was the DeSoto Bar Band in, you know, Clearwater. There was DeSoto, you know, I just, I was like, come on, man. We can do better than this. So the first thing when I was like putting bands together, it was always name first, right? You learn from like the Malcolm McLarens and stuff. You just start with the name and work out. So we're coming up with names. I'm writing names down every day and they're writing down names. And uh, they send me, the, the guitar player, Hunter, great kid, sends me a text. And I'm walking down Fifth Avenue and it's uh, Christmas season, probably 2006. Uh, six, 2006, like, you know, mid-December. Beautiful day, idyllic, like, you know, you see the snowflakes up in the sky next to the lights. And I get this text from this fool, and it says, we have decided on a band name that we want to go with, and we would really prefer if you just green light it first without any commentary, blah, blah, blah. blah. I just long missive before he even says the name. So I'm like, fuck this guy, you know? This just goes on and on. And it says, we want to be called Check Yes Juliet. And I just pick up the phone and I just light this kid up. And I have a million reasons why it's the worst band name I've ever heard. You know, this was also the week that Hey There Delilah was like a hit. And they're going to be the Check Yes Juliet. You know, it was this terrible band name. And I was screaming at him about how it's pigeonholing him and he'll be sort of forever associated with a scene and a moment in time as opposed to, you know, a broader name. Now, of course, Hootie and the Blowfish would disprove that. But like, you know, it was like a it was a thing. Right. And uh, we all eventually agree on We the Kings. Everyone's exciting. We're making the excited. We're making the record. We're on the last song on the record and we have a melody in place. And I walk out to get coffee down uh, at the mud truck on Astor Place. And it's it's raining. It's now January, February. It's so cold and disgusting. And I'm standing outside and I just start singing, check, yes, Juliet, are you with me? Rain is falling down. And I hear it. And I run with this coffee cup up 4th Avenue across through the horror store, the, the, the costume store on Broadway, cut through. That was always our path over to Crush to the... Uh, to the the studio and I just run through the door and those guys are there and we've been working for six weeks straight and we're all exhausted and I just start screaming, check this, Julian, you know, and I'm doing this thing. 
and it became a huge hit and it was a platinum record and like you know it was just very funny so and and the band didn't change their name to that but you got a song out of it we got a song we had a big hit so that's great fun. i love that so your parents were academic did that make you a rebel the one thing i'd say is i think you know i um you know at that age you know we were talking about it earlier you know i had learning issues back when learning issues you know weren't really uh weren't really dealt with so my parents were just absolutely flabbergasted because here i was and you know as a child of these academics and a family that i mean across the board you know i mean the lineage uh, you know academically in my family is mind-blowing and you know we got to me i couldn't sit still in classrooms I was always in like a dreamlike state and I couldn't, you know, with reading, I would read a book and then you would, you know, you know, you would ask me what I just read and uh, language processing, I think is what it's deemed. And, you know, and you would read this and I would have no idea what I just read. I read great in front of you, in front of you, you say, oh, this guy's totally like, he can read. What are you talking about? I didn't process anything. So school was brutal for me and I did years of summer school and I was just like a colossal screw up and I began to act out because of it because I, I felt like I had sort of marginalized myself and people were people were considering you know I thought I just had sort of a dummy on my forehead and I didn't understand it because I thought it was a pretty sharp cat but it wasn't it wasn't articulated well and uh, because of that, I would say I wouldn't say I wouldn't say rebellious because my parents were supportive. My parents were so cool, man. Like you know, that you know they're both wicked smart, as they'd say in Boston. But they're also super artistic. So they knew I I was a creative kid, and I always had hustles, and I always had ideas, and I was scribbling in journals. And I told them at the age of fourteen I was going to be a songwriter. But then you know they were sort of marvelled at the idea that I was a songwriter. But it took me to eighteen to actually even start a band. I just sat in my room, writing in journals and writing record reviews for the school paper and. Just doing all the anything around music. Just you know, I went to two thousand concerts. I was never home. All I did was just go to the city and see shows, and uh, so they knew I had a passion. And I think in my in my household I was raised in, passion was king. If you believed in it, you would eventually find your path. And um, that's how I'm raising my child. You know, it's in terms of you let them chase it, and I think it's wonderful. Um, but it was uh, there were a lot of lumps along the way. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know when people are struggling. The struggle may not be their fault, you know, because we we always think that when things are hard, I, you know, I'm a bad student. I can't read. I'm not good enough. And to realize that some ways of thinking are not well suited for certain environments or systems. I think the educational system is so broken as it is. I feel like there's probably twenty percent of the kids are completely underserved because I think twenty percent. You know, my guess is have some sort of learning issue or another. And these are the kids, of course, that I bank on because they're the interesting kids. And, you know, so I know how the movie ends for them. Yeah. But to get there, they're, you know, they, uh, they're, they're underappreciated at that age. And so I love, you know, when I speak to kids, those are the kids I want to reach because I was one and I get it. And I know what they're going through because it's, edu- and I, you know, Educational system, it's just, it's so ridiculous in terms of, you know, what we reward and what we deem, Mm -hmm. you know, intelligence, you know, and even testing. I mean, testing as a concept is ludicrous, you know, 
If I had a college, there would be no standardized test whatsoever. I'd interview every kid for two hours, and those are the kids I take. I know who I'd grab. Right. That would make a lot more sense. I thank you for taking the time. Wherever I go to see you, you're always in some cool-looking joint. But yeah, this is like a production company facility for uh, film, so I'm staring at the script of Beverly Hills Ninja, and uh, that's a pretty cool grab. That might be Instagrammable for the four people who would care, but it... uh, now, you know, I love L.A. just because of how ludicrous it all is. So I enjoy this. It's all like levels of stupid. I got to say, you're like cool mom. And you have a cool mom, so it's weird. It's like, a, it's, it's like a family of cool moms. That's pretty cool. And your sister's a pretty cool mom, too. It's a lot of cool moms in your family. It's like a weird genetic code. I didn't know grandma, but... Come on! There you go. Hey, I love you. It was awesome. Thank you, Sam. It was awesome. Wow, that was great, talking to Sam Hollander. Well, stay with me. I am your host, Louise Goffin. You're listening to the Song Chronicles podcast.